Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. Today, we're going to be beginning what is really kind of a four-week mini series. Within the series, we're going to be looking at David's great sin and then the Lord's word through Nathan the prophet to that. And then we're going to look at Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, which are psalms that David wrote in response to this. So I once again, I'm going to take a long time and I'm going to read all of 2 Samuel 11, uh, both so that we kind of hear it together. We can maybe hear it the way they did it. And because as hard as I'm going to labor to speak only truth this morning, uh, when I read this, this is the one time in the entire meeting you can be certain God Almighty is speaking, is when I read his word. And so I encourage you to hear now the word of the sovereign, holy, all-knowing God. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw for him so he will be struck down and die. 
So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech and Jerubesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone from him, on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out. When he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. There is an all-too-familiar story that if you've been around at all, you have heard time and time again. A powerful man takes advantage of his privilege and his position. He uses women for sexual pleasure. And when it becomes known what he has does, what he has done, there is a predictable pattern of denial, blaming, and increasing sin to cover up the original sin. Right now, our culture is in the middle of the Me Too movement that started when this exact behavior pattern began with the powerful Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein. And he went through that exact thing. And then many other people have had their sin exposed and is brought up. But it's not just Hollywood, because our current president, Donald Trump, of course, is going through the exact same thing as his sins from the past are uncovered, and there's been the attempts to cover it up. And then our former president, Bill Clinton, if you remember, went through the exact same thing both before and while he was in office. But let us not think it is simply Hollywood entertainment moguls, nor politicians. If you have paid attention in the last couple of weeks, an evangelical pastor named Bill Hybels, who began Willow Creek Church up in Chicago, which grew to one of the largest evangelical churches in America, 30,000 people. It began what was known as the seeker-sensitive movement. And Hybels was a man who said that women were not given enough opportunity to do things in the church, and he had worked, and he had stressed, and he had pushed this, and he was 65 years old and about to retire. And then the stories began to come out. And the second I read them, to be honest, my heart sank, because while I disagreed with some of Bill Hybels' theology, I thought he was a man who had conducted himself with honor. 
But the immediate response back put a pit, just a knot in my gut. Because I said, this is the same pattern I have seen time and again, and it is going to bleed out that what these women are saying is true. And just last Sunday, it became a front-page article in the New York Times, and it was so bad that this past week, the two pastors that were taking over from Bill Hybels have both resigned and the entire board of elders is gone in a church of 30,000 people. These are all just recent examples of David's great sin. The same pattern that trapped David has continued to work against people all the way down to our own age. So today, in, an ex- in successive weeks, we're going to look at David's sin. We're going to ask ourselves, how did he fall so far? I remind you, this is the man that the Scripture says is the man after God's own heart. This is the man that is the standard by which all other kings are judged. This is the man that the Messiah comes from, the son of David. How did he get into this mess? And how can you and I protect ourselves? So I'm going to say this morning, strap in, this is going to be a sober teaching. It's been sober for me all week. Okay? But this is part of why we teach through books of the Bible. Because we have to deal with texts like this. They are important for us. So let's begin by looking at David's multifaceted sin. The first thing, because when we say David's sin, everybody immediately says, well, he had sexual sin with Bathsheba. And that's true, and we're going to get there. But there's a sin prior to that that really lays the groundwork for David's problem and traps him. And that is David's abuse of power and privilege. And the author wants us to know that that is the root that begins the problem. Now, why do I say that? Notice in verse 1, we're told, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. And he sends him off. And then notice it says, but David remained at Jerusalem at the end of the verse. Now, why I bring this up is, it's a time of war Kings go off to war, we're told. But does David go to war? No, he doesn't. And in fact, if you remember, everything from chapter 7, where we were looking at God's covenant, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all David's warfare that we looked at earlier, where God was making David successful, and David was always off at battle. But in verse 1, David's not off at battle. Joab sends, he sends Joab off. And notice, it's not just Joab, we're told that basically all the men of Israel and Judah went off. They're, they're all out there. The picture is like every able-bodied man in Israel is out fighting except for David. David is not. He's back in Jerusalem. And sin often begins when we neglect our God-given responsibilities. If David had been doing what he ought to have been doing, he would not have even been in Jerusalem to have the sin in the first place. But he wasn't. He was neglecting it. But even more than that, and we read by this, but I want you to see very carefully the the human author that the Holy Spirit is speaking through in in, uh, 2 Samuel. We've seen how careful he is with the words that he uses and how he's telling a story. Well, here's a key word in this chapter. Notice the word sent. David sent Joab. 
I want you to look here. I'm just going to show just a few of them. In verse 1, David sent Joab. In verse 3, David sent someone to find out about the woman. In verse 4, David sent messengers to have the woman brought to him. In verse 5, David sends word to Joab. The word sent occurs 12 times in this chapter. And eight of them, it's David sending people around like pawns on a chessboard. Because I am the king, and I'm in charge, and I do what I want to do. So when it's time for war, I don't go. I just send an army. When I see a woman, I send and find out who she is. And when I want her, I send, and I take what I want. Throughout this chapter, David is seen in despotic power and privilege. And make no mistake, David is being deceived into thinking he is above the rules. He is thinking that he can use others in violation of God's law, and he can do it with impunity. He can get away with it. And friends, whenever we think that we are above temptation and that the rules that apply to others don't apply to us, sin is lurking at the door to enslave and destroy us. As a sideline, one of the things that just broke my heart with the story about Bill Hybels, and I'm not trying to trash him, I'm using him as an example. He had the Billy Graham rule. Men don't get alone with women, unless your name's Bill Hybels. Then you can. And I have a boat. And we need to talk about church work, so me and one of my female assistants, we're going to go on the boat out on Lake Michigan by ourselves all day long. The second I read it, I knew this was trouble. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Not only that, he had a private jet that flew him around places. I've said before, ministers of the gospel do not have any business living like we're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. If you want to live that way, go be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. That's fine. If you are a minister of the gospel, that is not your call, your place, your role. And the second you give in to that, you're starting to act like King David. And friends, when we do that, sin is crouching at the door. That's exactly what's going on with David. So it's not surprising that David's abuse of power and privilege leads to David's sexual lust and actions. Notice in verses 2 and 3, we read, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now notice here what we've just heard. Where are all the able-bodied men in Israel? They're off at war. Meanwhile, David's taking a long siesta. He's lounging around, and he gets up in the evening, late in the day. This siesta is not just siesta, it's a long one. And he starts wandering around his roof. The troops are fighting for Israel. David's lounging around taking a nap. And he wanders out on the roof, and then notice he looks down, and we see from his roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And so she's beautiful and she catches David's eye. Now, I want to be very clear about this. Some people have managed to turn this into a text about Bathsheba. Do you notice she's not even being named hardly in the text? She's just the woman. That's not because she's not important. It's because the focus is not on her and her actions. It's on David and his. This is not a text about Bathsheba. This is a text about David 
And David has no excuse. And anybody that turns this text into a sermon about what Bathsheba ought not to have done is not reading or write the Word of God. It is about what David did. And what David did is he looked down and he saw her and he ought to have turned aside. But he did not because she was beautiful. And David looks and it says that he sent someone to find out about her. Because see, David at this point, I just, I'm not saying I'm going to do anything, but you know, it doesn't hurt to look at the menu as long as you don't order anything and eat it. And have you ever heard that stupidity? It doesn't, you know, I'm just looking. No, you're not, friend. You're not just looking. And David's not just looking. So he sends to find out about her. But then, amazingly, he finds out that she is the daughter of a very powerful man, the granddaughter of his actual counselor, Ahithophel, who we're going to come back and read about later. And she is the wife of one of his 30 mightiest warriors. In our parlance, she is the wife of a Medal of Honor winner. One of David's mightiest men. Now, David, at this point, surely is going to wake up and say, whoa, I was about to go somewhere I ought not go. Right? And thus ends the chapter. But see, that's not the way that sin works. He is too far gone to turn back. And friends, the reason for this is because sin is deceitful and it hardens the heart. And when it starts to work, we would be shocked at the places we will find ourselves going. And suddenly, David is not stopped by the fact that it's Uriah's wife. He just charges right through. And so David, notice in verse 4, and I'm going to put this up on the screen in the English Standard Version, and the reason is the NIV is a little looser with the text, and I want you to hear the verbs. Here's how it actually reads in the Hebrew. So David sent messengers, and he took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. David commits adultery, and maybe more. David's having his Me Too moment. And notice what it goes on. Notice the, the verbs there. Sent, took, lay. These are powerful verbs that are meant to express David's unbridled desire that has overwhelmed his conscience. She is merely a receptacle for his pleasure. That's all David's viewing of her. She is something to be used. How does David get here? Friends, the way sin works is it often begins with a glance or a chance meeting. It grows into a strong desire which leads to actions which produce habits that become virtually impossible to resist. But it all started back with a glance that should have been stopped. The New Testament reflects on this in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. James writes this, Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-blown, gives birth to death. Notice, it's my evil desire. Because if I'm David, guess who I want to blame? 
Anybody else? Well, Bathsheba, what were you doing on the roof? What were you? That's not the issue. And God doesn't allow that. It's my evil desire. And that evil desire conceives. And it ought to be cut, and it ought to be stopped. But if it's not destroyed, the desires conceive, and they give birth to sinful actions. And over time, those sinful actions are repeated and repeated, and they become habits which destroy everything they touch. And one would think when you are in that cycle, one would think that when I am in that cycle, I would wake up and I would come clean. But sin is deceitful, and it hardens the heart. It's not my evil. It can't be me. James's text actually said that people are blaming God. It's God's fault. I'm in this. Which would seem ridiculous until you go back to the very first sin, and what does Adam say to God? You know, it's the woman you gave me. That's really the root of the problem, God. And we've been repeating that ever since the garden. Then notice David, trapped in this, this cycle that's in James, goes into an ever-downward spiral of sin. So, first off, there's an unexpected consequence. David thinks he's gotten away with it. And then in verse 5 we read, The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Now remember, she had just finished her ritual washing because she was being ritually cleansed after her monthly cycle, which means two things that David knew. Number one, she was not already pregnant. And number two, she's at her most fertile moment of the month, which ought to have been a warning to David, but sin is deceitful, and it hardens the heart. And David's not paying attention. And so suddenly he hears back that she's pregnant. And so one would think at this moment, David would say, oh man, I'm going to have to come clean. But David is in the grip of deceit. He is, sin has its hooks in him, and David will not hear. And so what he does is he sends for Uriah the Hittite, and you can hardly think of a more stark contrast of two people and their behaviors. David, notice again, he sends. I'm still the king. I'm still in power. I've still got privilege, so get me Uriah and get him here. I'm going to fix this mess. That's what I'm going to do. And he brings Uriah in, and notice the literary device. I won't take the time to look at it, but he says, so tell me about the war. And then we're not told what Uriah says. You know why? Because we're seeing and hearing everything from David's perspective, and David has no interest in what's going on in the war. It's just wah, 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 wah. Okay, well, yeah, whatever. Here, Uriah, why don't you go home and wash your feet? which is a euphemism, as we know, because Uriah says later what David was expecting, which is, go home, Uriah, and enjoy your wife, because then I'll have a plausible reason why Bathsheba is pregnant. He expects this is going to give a cover-up for his sin. But, of course, he finds out Uriah leaves the palace. David sends a gift after him, and he finds out, where does Uriah sleep? On the cold, hard stone outside on a mat with all of David's servants. And David finds out, and he asks Uriah, he says, what in the world are you doing? Why didn't you go home? And listen to Uriah's words. Verse 11, he says, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Get the picture. 
Uriah the Hittite, a foreigner who's coming to God's people, and David the anointed king with whom God has made covenant. Uriah, who has every right to enjoy love with his wife, and David, who had no right. But Uriah doesn't take that right. David does. And Uriah says, I won't do this because all the men of Israel are out at war, except for David, who's home taking naps and sleeping with other men's wives. I won't do such a thing, David. And one would think at this point, David's conscience would be pricked. And he would say, behold how righteous this man is, I'm going to come clean. But sin is deceitful, and it hardens the heart. And David doesn't even hear his conscience. He runs right through, and he says, you know what? I am still large and in charge. So Uriah, come, come back tonight. And he gets Uriah drunk. And Uriah's character is such, even drunk, he will not go home. He lies outside on the steps one more night. And one would think this would awaken David, that this man drunk is more righteous than I am, sober. But sin is deceitful. And it's hardened David's heart. And so David says, i got a thing that will solve this problem. I'm going to have Uriah put to death. So notice in verses 14 and 15, he writes a letter to Joab, and he sends it with Uriah. David has decided that righteous Uriah, his faithful friend, his faithful servant, the great warrior, righteous Uriah must die, because David is not going to have his sin exposed. And so he writes a letter and he sends it to Joab. And get the irony, he knows Uriah is so righteous, he can send his death warrant in his own hand. And Uriah's not going to open it. He's not going to do any of that. David knows how righteous Uriah is. And surely this will prick the heart of David. But it doesn't. Now he's got Joab implicated in his own sin. And he sends it back. And see, and here's the problem. If you really read the text, Joab knows something's going on. And there's no way for Joab to pull this off without doing something that is completely militarily stupid. And there is no way to do it without other men dying. So what's going to happen is other, inno other innocent men die. Notice in verse 17, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. And also, Uriah the Hittite died. David's sin produces death. Seven times in the rest of the chapter, the word death is going to come up. It's a constant drumbeat. Because this is what sin does. It defiles it deforms, it destroys, it produces death in everything it touches. Sin is deceitful and it hardens the heart, but the wages of sin is death. So innocent men die. And I want you to notice 
What this means is David, the shepherd of Israel, has now become more like the godfather. He's like Tony Soprano running the mafia. And death is being dealt out. He is a murderer of innocence. How can this, how is this David, the man after God's own heart? It's because sin is deceitful. And it hardens your heart. And it hardens my heart. And you wake up. And the man after God's own heart is putting innocent people to death. And then notice David's callous reaction. When word comes back, and I can't even go into again, there's a reason why Joab picks out and says, you remember when Abimelech got killed by the woman? You know why Joab picks that story? Because Joab suspects there's a woman at the heart of all this. This has got something to do with David and a woman. And he sends word back to David. And he notifies that a bunch of men have had to die. And notice David's callous response in verse 25. Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The Hebrew is literally, don't let this be evil in your eyes. Don't let this be an evil thing in your eyes, Joab. Look, the sword devours one as well as another. Just press the attack. Say this to encourage Joab, the shepherd no longer cares if the sheep are slaughtered for his own sin. Because sin is deceitful and it has hardened David's heart till it's like a stone. And then notice in verses 26 and 27, and I'm going to again put it up in the English Standard Version because it's a little more literal. Notice what we're told. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Notice it doesn't call her Bathsheba. Now this is not because Bathsheba is not important. What is God trying to impress upon us here? She's another man's wife. And he may be dead, but that's still who she is. Three times. It's the marriage relationship between her and her Uriah. And notice, she is mourning over her husband. But in verse 27 we read, And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She's mourning and David's tapping his fingers and tapping his toes like, When can we get this over? i got to move on to the next part of my plan. i got to get her here so we can have a honeymoon conception, apparently, and to give some plausible reason for this child. No concern for Uriah and no concern for her. She's still nameless. Because all she is is somebody that David poured his lust out on. And so notice that what we're told one last time, David sent. Last time David sends. We'll come back next time to who sends in chapter 12. And it's not David. Because a prophet's going to be sent. And David's going to get called to account. But David, one last time, I'm still in charge. Get her. Bring her here. Brings her to his house. And I want you to notice there the irony. We've been talking the last two weeks. What did God promise to David in the covenant? I'll build your... The house I'm going to build 
you're going to bring a woman in who you have unrighteously taken, you have killed her husband, deceived others, implicated into the sin, and you're going to bring her right into the very thing that I promised to build for you. This is the state of David's heart. And she bears a son, and David thinks he's gotten away with his sin. And it looks like he has. It looks exactly like he has gotten away with it. And David sits back on his throne, and he breathes a sigh of relief because he thinks it's over. Because sin is deceitful, and it hardens the heart. Now, I know this is a cheery word, right? Everybody glad they got up on a Sunday morning? I want to talk about how we apply this word. And let me be blunt. If, if this sermon is kind of scary, good. I hope it scares the hell right out of you and me. Because make no mistake, sin is no less deceitful today. It is horrible. So here is our application this week. We're going to see God's response to this next week. Here's our application this week. Do I see the horrible nature of sin? I've been alluding to a text all morning long. As you've noticed, probably 50 times I've said sin is deceitful and hardens heart. That's not my phrase. Hebrews 3.13 says this. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that... None of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, the writer to Hebrews later on is looking and he says, this is the nature of sin. It is deceitful. And when sin gets in, it starts hardening the heart. And the heart that was soft towards God becomes hard. And the heart that was open to the Word of God becomes deaf. And the eyes that look to see the glory of God, now we're blinded to that and see other things. So I want you to consider for a moment how sin deceived and hardened David. What began with indulging in privileges, progressed to a lustful gaze, ended with adultery, deceit, drunkenness, conspiracy, murder, and cover-up. Because, friends, sin is not managed, it is not contained, but it grows, it defiles, it consumes everything it touches. This is the horrible nature of sin. We all think we can contain it. We all think we can manage it. And you cannot. And the Scripture has told us that from the beginning. Adam and Eve, they sin. They think they're going to get away with it. God shows up. And in the very next chapter, it is this horrible litany of sins. The first brother kills the second brother. I mean, it takes just a few verses, and sin has progressed to death and murder. 
and you move in. By the end of the chapter, there's a guy saying, hey, you think Cain was bad? I'm seven times worse than the murderer. That's the nature of sin. And you go to chapter 5, and there's this genealogy that runs, and everybody wants to add up the years and all this pointless stuff that has nothing to do with what the text is about. You know the point of Genesis 5? And he died. Because what sin does is it kills everything it touches. But we're convinced it's not that big a deal. And when I say we, I include myself. Because every time you and I choose to turn our gaze into action, we believe we can get away with it. Because if David had known all this was going to happen, he'd have walked right back out of that roof into his room. But he didn't believe it was going to happen. So he did what he thought he could get away with. Notice that the man after God's own heart found his heart hardened to God to truth, to righteousness, and he was consumed by ever-growing sin. That is always what sin does. Always. To think that we can have sin and not have it spread and consume is thinking you can take yeast and put it into sugar or dough and have it not spread. It'll never work that way. But you and I are convinced we can Because sin whispers in our ear, I'm not going to be like that. Not this time, not you. You'll get away with it. The man who would not so much as touch King Saul, who was trying to murder him, will now play the godfather, conspire with other, and have righteous Uriah and a bunch of innocent people killed. That is what sin does, and it does it to everyone that indulges in it. That is the horrible nature of sin. Sin's also horrible and unforeseen consequences. Consider again what happened. David thought he was just going to have sex with Bathsheba, and that was going to be the end of it. But that's not the end of it. She becomes pregnant. Uriah acts righteously, and David has got to go from one sin to another sin to another sin in an ever-deepening spiral of sin attempting to cover up. That is the deceitful and horrible nature of sin. David's own sin eventually caused the deaths of many people. And how many of you know when he sat there on that roof and his conscience told him, don't look, turn away, And he decided, I'll just look. Did David think this is going to end up with the deaths of faithful soldiers? Not on your life. And when Adam and Eve plucked the fruit, did they think? Death, destruction, devastation for all the children who will be born to us. Not on your life, friends. It'll open your eyes. You'll be like God. That's what sin does. So the question for you and me in answering this is, do I think sin can be played with and indulged with no real consequences? And before you answer, because I assume if you've been listening at all, right now your answer would be no. But you know what? 
Every time you and I sin, how are we answering that question? Yes, I do think. I think I can get away with this, and there won't be consequences. I can cheat on my spouse. I can raise my voice and get angry and scream at my children. I can just whisper a little gossip about this person, and it's not going to have that effect. Do I think that's going to happen? And do I realize that even when I'm doing it and I sit back in my chair and I think I got away with it, do I realize that it always displeases God? Verse 27, notice the little phrase that the chapter ends on. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Does that phrase sound familiar? Joab, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Two verses later, same exact Hebrew phrase. Yeah, well, David, it might not be evil in your eyes. You might tell Joab to not let it be evil in his eyes. I'll tell you whose eyes it is evil in. It's evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And you know the amazing thing? Do you notice who was never mentioned throughout this entire chapter until this verse? Yahweh. Because who's not been in David's sight, his heart, or his mind at all? Yahweh. Oddly enough, the man after God's own heart. The man who humbly sat before God and said, Who am I? that you would make covenant with me like this. Yahweh is nowhere in his mind or eyes. He has not been in the gaze of David throughout the entire chapter. He has been utterly absent from David's sight. But verse 27 lets us know David's not been absent from Yahweh's sight. He's been watching. He's been observing. And God would say, do not be deceived. I am not mocked. What you sow, you're going to reap, David. And that we will come to next week. But do we see, friends, no matter what is going on, you may do your sin, I may do my sin, and nobody else knows. And I sit back in my chair, kick the legs up, click on the TV, and think sin had no consequence never true. God always watches, and he's displeased. And let me be clear, he's displeased not because he's an angry, judging God. He's displeased because he knows what sin is doing. It is always there, always working, always deforming, deceiving, destroying, causing death everywhere it goes. Do I realize that? One last question, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table in a moment. The question is, do I have others who hold me accountable? Do I have others who hold me accountable? Sin is deceitful. So you and I got to go out of here and be prepared. Because it will be here to meet you, and it will be here to meet me, and it's going to try and deceive us. And it's good at deceiving us. It's very good at it. That's why it worked on David. And don't make the mistake of thinking, 
I'm better than David. You are not, nor am I. God did not write in the Bible, Brett, the man after God's own heart. He did write it about David. Jesus did not speak in one of the very last words he ever uttered in the Scripture, Revelation 22, and say, I am the root and the offspring of Brett. He did say that about David. David was a man whose heart was right before God, and he still ended up in this place. So we've got to be prepared. Now, there's many ways we could bring up, and, and I would just say before I even turn to a text, one thing Please, please, please realize we need to build high walls, strong gates, lots of locks, and give the key to somebody else. Okay? This very week, in the wake of me studying this text, and in the, the wake of the Bill Hybels thing, I had two meetings where it got to be a mess, and there was going to be me and a woman, and there was going to be nobody here at the office when I was trying to do it, and I'm the crazy guy who's like, no, I'm not doing that. Not doing that. And I've said before, is that because I don't trust the women? Absolutely. Is that because I don't trust me? Absolutely. Because I've read 2 Samuel 11. And if you don't build high walls and gates like that, if I don't build those, you're going to wake up one morning and open the Capitol and I'm going to be on the cover and embarrass my God and the gospel and my family and this church. Do not be deceived. Build high walls. Let the world laugh. I don't care. I don't want to make shipwreck and ruin everything. Now, there's many of those things we could talk about. I'm going to talk about just one of them because it's in the text that I mentioned. Hebrews 3.13. Notice it gives us an answer. But encourage one another how often? Daily. How often is sin at your door crouching, trying to get you? Every day. And notice he goes on and says, as long as it's called today. So tomorrow wake up and ask yourself, is it today? What is the answer going to be? Yes. And then what do you need? Encouragement from other believers. Sin does not take a break. But we think, you know, well, I got my little shot on Sunday. I'll be good to go till next week. No, you won't. Nor will I. Do I have people in close fellowship with me? Notice, when did David's trouble began? Where was he? In Jerusalem, by himself. Everybody around him that might hold him accountable was gone. And suddenly, the unthinkable becomes thinkable, becomes done, becomes ever-deepening, hardening sin. And apparently, I mean, here's a big concern. It looks like Joab kind of figured out what was going on and some of the servants. I mean, when David sends down and gets Bathsheba, at least that guy knows what's going on. But apparently there was nobody to tell David, no, stop that. And apparently, Bill Hybels, who I had thought much of, had nobody around him to say no to him either. And even when reports started filtering in, nobody listened. Nobody believed the women. Do you have somebody who can tell you, no, that's a bad idea. Stop that. Because, friend, better to have a friend who can encourage, exhort, 
and even say no and kick you in the pants than to have to have God send Nathan the prophet with the word of judgment. And that's pretty much the two options we've got. Do I have who that person is? Are you in close fellowship to protect you from sin? Am I in a small group with other people where regularly we're seeing each other, where we're checking up on each other, where we're working? Is that what we are doing? Because, friend, if it is today and you don't have people who are there encouraging, holding you accountable, reaching out to you and doing that, then you can know sin's deceitfulness will sneak in and it will harden the heart. Now what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to go ahead and bring it over. And I know this has been a sobering teaching. I know this is not the kind of teaching that you know, is going to pack thousands of people out and all of that. But friends, this is God's word to us. And the reason we're coming to the table and we're doing this each of the, the next weeks coming up is because the Lord is the one who answers this. See, what David discovered in this chapter is even good, righteous David needs a redeemer. And every one of us in here need a redeemer. And there are many aspects to the Lord's table. And most weeks when we come, like over the last couple of times we've come up, we've been claiming the promises of God and being encouraged. Today, we're going to come to this table as a table of confession and a table of cleansing and repentance and asking God to work in our heart. So what I'm asking you to do is to be prepared to come and to ask God to reveal sin to you. And friend, don't tell me you don't have any besetting sins. I've been walking with Jesus for 40 years and I got the sins that I'm like, Lord, here I am again. I am still struggling with this. We've got to open up and own, and we've got to stay in the fight. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what sins are there. And maybe to reveal to us, David, don't even walk out on the roof. You need not go on the roof right now, David. Oh, that somebody had told David that. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to do this. And I'm going to read this morning from 1 Corinthians 11 like I normally do, but I'm going to continue on through the whole instruction Paul gives. So hear the word of the Lord in a moment. Before I do, let me take care of this there. We, we've got gluten-free. If you need it, you'll raise your hand in a moment. And I want to encourage everyone, this meal is for everyone. You don't have to be a member of our church. You do have to be a Christian. You have to realize we're not just hearing about somebody else that had a sin problem. You and I have a sin problem. And the only resolution is the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that we are sinful. Christ is righteous. We deserve judgment. God offers mercy in Christ. If we believe that, then please come to the table with us. So hear now the word of the Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance 
of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Excuse me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. We're going to pass out the elements. and As you get them, I want us to take a couple of moments of serious confession, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us, confessing, asking God to cleanse, and us repenting of our sin. And then I'll come back up and we will take together uh, to receive God's cleansing and forgiveness and also strength. So we're going to pass the elements out and then we will take them together in a moment. Holy Father, we were made in your image, created to desire righteousness and resist sin. But we turn from you, the one who is true, beautiful, and good, and chose sin, which is false, ugly, and evil. Sin has deceived and hardened our hearts so that we have repeated the choice time and again, seemingly trapped in a downward spiral of sin. Today we acknowledge and confess our sin, recognizing that sin is destructive and deforming, always harmful to ourselves and those we love. We make no excuses, but simply come with full confession of our sin seeking mercy in Christ alone. Lord, we ask you humbly to forgive us because of the work of Christ. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, have mercy on us. Take and eat. Father, today we have seen the power of sin to deform, destroy, enslave. And we have seen how its deceits can harden the heart of even your most devoted servants. And Lord, we admit we have no power to remove sin's stain nor to break its power in our lives. But we also know and confess the power of the blood of Christ. It is sufficient to forgive our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. 
It is able to remove sin's penalty and to break its power. So Lord, we take this cup, humbly asking you to cleanse away our sin by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Give us eyes to see the deceitfulness of sin, that we might turn from it in horror. Give us eyes to see the way of escape in our time of temptation so that we might flee. Empower us to hate sin and to love God, to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to embrace the ways and word of God. Keep our hearts soft and conform our will to yours that we might grow in Christ's likeness throughout this week. Do all of this, we pray, in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together, and we're going to conclude with the word of benediction. I'm going to be pronouncing over us God's blessing from Psalm 79, verse 9. I encourage you, I know this has been a challenging teaching, but I encourage you to receive God's forgiveness this morning and His empowering, and then go forth to live in light of that. May God our Savior help you for the glory of His name. May He deliver you and forgive all of your sins for His name's sake. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, go in His peace, forgiveness, mercy, and love. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.